You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the New Testament book of Luke. Here's Nate. Well, moving into Luke chapter 4, these first 13 verses, we have an opportunity to look at the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness uh, by the devil. And I think one of the first things to really remember as we approach this particular text is that Jesus is obviously, and we know this, very different from us. And what I mean by that is that he was fully conscious of the reality that we are fallen humanity. And, and Adam, even as the way that he's phrasing this, is trying to show us that Jesus is the perfect man. And here he will demonstrate his perfection by standing in the face of the most brutal temptation that mankind has ever experienced. And I think that, you know, on one hand, that probably goes without saying, but on the other hand, it bears repeating because I think quite often we look at this particular passage and we think that all it is is a template for us on how to overcome temptation. And there are, listen, there are great truths found inside of this passage, which will help us overcome temptation in our own lives. But it is Jesus who fully and completely overcame and to exalt him and rejoice over him because of this great victory is an altogether important practice and reality uh, for a Christian. And really the first two verses give us that uh, in the details of this particular event. It says in verse one, and Jesus full of the Holy Spirit. And of course he had been filled with the spirit there at his baptism, so to speak, the spirit of God descending upon him in bodily form, uh, like a dove. And so here now he's full of the spirit. What would be the first thing that would happen after the spirit descended upon Jesus? Well, it says here that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit. So now again, the Spirit once again is involved. He's full of the Spirit. He's led by the Spirit in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they were ended, he was hungry. And so we learn here that the first event uh, in Jesus' life, after his baptism, led by the Spirit, full of the Holy Spirit, Later, we'll see that he returns in the power of the Spirit to the region of the Galilee. And so the Spirit's involvement in his life, he is led into the wilderness for a period of testing inside of his life, tempted for these 40 days by the devil. Uh, Luke, along with Matthew, gives us three distinct temptations from the devil, but uh, really, the temptation was happening during the entire 40-day fast. And at the end of it, his body is fatigued, his body is worn down, and simply put, he is hungry. He's at the point of starvation. Now, just looking at the details of this event, it's hard not to see the contrast between Jesus and the last human figure mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, Adam. You know, when Adam fell into sin and failed in the face of temptation, it was one temptation. Uh, Jesus, of course, 
was tempted during the duration of those 40 days and with these three massive temptations, likely at the very end of his temptation on the 40th day. Adam, at the time of his testing, could eat anything he wanted in the Garden of Eden except for one thing. There was only one thing that Adam could do that was sin. Jesus, at the time of his testing, was not full, but was starving. And there were, of course, many things in that era, in that fallen world that Jesus could have done that would have been sin. For Adam, there was only one thing that was categorized as sin, but not so at the time of Christ. Adam lived in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was in the desert wilderness. Adam was physically strong and healthy. Jesus was physically weak and hungry. Adam had a perfect companion in Eve, and Jesus was completely alone. Adam failed, but Jesus triumphed. And so I think it's good for us just to simply realize, you know, the Lord, he's victorious. And, And one of the biggest and strongest keys to overcoming temptation is to have vital fellowship with Christ. He is the one who overcomes. He is the one who is able. He is the one who will stand within us and enable us to overcome temptation in our modern day. If there's just one thing for us to get from this, it's that, man, Jesus overcame the most brutal temptation that could ever be overcome. I struggle with temptation. I should cling to Jesus so that his victory can be found inside of my life. He identifies with me. The other great truth here is that Jesus was going out to be tempted. It's not just to see his victory and want to tap into his victory, but to be comforted by the reality that Jesus identifies with me. Sometimes I'll hear people say, you know, hey, could Jesus have really sinned? And of course, I believe that, you know, his humanity could have, but you can't separate his humanity from his deity. And so it would be impossible for Jesus to sin because he really, at the same time that he set aside the privileges of his deity, he was still God and God cannot sin. And so I don't think he could have uh, sinned. And so sometimes people will say, well, you know, it's hard for me to really think that Jesus understands what it's like to be tempted because, well, you know, he couldn't have really sinned. And, could, you know, so it seems as if he doesn't really understand what it was like. Listen, if you really think about the temptation that Jesus endured during those 40 days in the wilderness without food at the hands of the devil, the intensity of the pressure that he was experiencing, If you really understand that and really think about that, I think you could say the reverse. I think it's almost as if we could say, I don't understand how I can relate to Jesus's temptation. It's just a whole other category, so much more intense than any of the weaker versions of temptation that I have experienced in my own life. Jesus was going through the ringer. And I say all that just to say, Jesus identifies with us. Job had asked the question in Job 9, verse 32 and 33. He says, listen, God's not a man as I am that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. You know, Job was wondering, is there ever going to be anyone who can mediate between God and man? And Jesus here in this temptation He is becoming our mediator. He is identifying himself with us. 
Of course, we know that from Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And so because of that, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so just a beautiful thing there that Jesus is able to identify with us. Now, we have here a listing of three specific temptations at the hands of the devil. The first one mentioned in verse three and four. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, really, with this first temptation, we understand that these temptations, although Jesus is able to identify with us in them, these particular temptations are different from our everyday experience in one sense. In other words, you've likely never experienced the temptation to turn a rock into a piece of bread. Why would we not be tempted in that way? Well, because we don't have that ability. There's no divine power that we could tap into to turn a rock into bread. But that was the devil's temptation. Since you're the son of God, why don't you command this stone to become bread? Take advantage of your position. That was the temptation. But really, the thing underlying this temptation seems to simply be this. If you're the son of God, how could God's son be hungry? And if that's what's going on beneath the surface, well, you know, that is obviously a big part of what it means for us to experience temptation, to look at our position in Christ, to say, you know, if God loves me, if God really cares for me, if I really am a co-heir with Jesus, if I really am God's child, then why am I going through this difficulty, this cancer, this sickness, this uh, financial disaster? Uh, why is there this pain and this trial inside of my life? If I'm God's child, why am I you know, doing God's will and serving the Lord and, and trying to work within his church? And why am I doing these things? And then still at the same time, experiencing pain. If I'm really God's child, why am I going through that difficulty? And perhaps that question, how could God's son be hungry? Now, the interesting thing is that we know that Jesus had this ability. And actually, you know, his, one of his most famous miracles, the only miracle outside of the resurrection recorded by all four gospel writers, when Jesus turned the five loaves and two fish into bread and fish for over 5,000 people, 5,000 men plus women and children. And so we know that Jesus is able to do this kind of miracle. And so the difference here is that it would be entirely selfish rather than selfless. Uh, Jesus would work the miracle for others. Satan was tempting him to do it for himself. So here it is, the temptation. How could God's child be hungry? Why don't you command this stone to become bread? And Jesus answered, I want you to see this reply. Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Now, first of all, we must notice that Jesus countered the temptations brought against him by the devil with the word of God. Three times we'll see him say, it is written or something similar. It is said. 
quoting from the Old Testament. And here he's going to quote from Deuteronomy 8, and he'll also quote in these temptations from Deuteronomy chapter 6. And so who knows, but perhaps that particular day, Jesus had set his mind upon Deuteronomy 6 and 7 and 8 and was thinking about the wilderness wandering of the people of Israel for those 40 years in the wilderness as he had fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. But regardless, Jesus used the word of God effectively in combating sin. The Bible says in Ephesians 6 verse 17 that the word of God is the sword of the spirit. Jesus pulls out his weapon to respond to the enemy. And here he quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 8. And he says, man shall not live by bread alone. Now I want you to notice the first word scripturally that Jesus quotes. It's the word man. Man. In one sense, it's almost as if Jesus here, and I, I want to be careful in the way that I say this, but it's almost as if Jesus here at this moment is announcing to the devil, listen, I know who I am, and I've been searching the very word of God to learn how a man deals with this thing that you are doing, this temptation. And what I've discovered is that man, what I now am and, and what I've taken on to myself as the son of man, man shall not live by bread alone. I just love that first word out of Jesus's mouth. It's almost like a discovery. I've discovered that man does not live by bread alone. Now, the rest of the quote, of course, goes, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. But here, Luke only records the first part of it. Man shall not live by bread alone. And I think there is in that verse and in that quotation, a beautiful protection against temptation. Because what was Satan trying to say? He's trying to say, listen, there's food to eat. You can produce it. You can make it. You need it. You're hungry. And in one sense, Jesus just simply saying, there's more to man. There's more to man than just his physical appetites. There's more to man than just what he needs physically. No, there's more to him. And he's spiritual in nature. He might have a body, but he is also made spirit, soul, and body. And there's a part of him that is only satisfied and satiated, not with bread, but with God. And so man will not live by bread alone. Man must receive from God. Man must be satisfied with God. And I think one of the greatest ways for us to overcome temptation is to realize that there's more to us than meets the eye. We are so different from the animal kingdom. And we're not just animals that have various appetites by which to be satisfied. No, we are spiritual creatures that need the Lord and to be satisfied by the Lord. And to say to yourself, there's more to me. When that temptation comes along, there's more to me than just this physical need and desire. The most important part of me is spiritual. I live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Well, the devil wasn't going to give up that easily. And so in verse five, it says the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you, I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Now, this more than likely is a supernatural vision. 
uh, that occurred. In fact, it really just must be. I, I remember having children's Bibles where there were pictures of Jesus and the devil there uh, looking out from a tall hill, able to see the kingdoms of the world down below. But obviously that would be supernatural in nature. And we see that there in verse five, that it happened in a moment of time. So a supernatural vision of all the kingdoms of the world. And Satan makes a very big claim there, doesn't he? He says, listen, all authority has been given to me and their glory. So all authority and their glory, I will give to you. I give it to whom I will. And I'll give it to you if you will worship me. And all of that is said because he says, because all these things, the authority and the glory, it has been delivered to me. And the interesting thing there is that Jesus did not dispute this claim from the devil. And so the question is, is there any truth to these statements? And did Satan really have that authority and that glory? Had it really been delivered to him? Well, Jesus did refer to Satan three times in John's gospel as the ruler of this world. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul called Satan the prince of the power of the air. And it's clear, obviously, that he has some authority, that he has some strength. And in one sense, if we were to ask the question, if it was delivered to Satan, when was that authority and glory delivered to Satan? Well, God seems to have created mankind to rule and reign and have dominion. And mankind seems to have taken that rule and reign and dominion and through the fall, in a spiritual sense, handed it over to the devil. And so if there was a moment where it had been delivered to him, that seems that it, that would have been the moment there in Genesis chapter 3. But at the end of the day, that power, that authority, it's rather limited, isn't it? Now, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness therein. And so we know that God himself is the sovereign, the supreme, that all authority and glory truly belongs to him. So perhaps it's a little bit like uh, those who pull out a loan to purchase a home. We might say, I own a home or I am now a home owner. But the reality is, is that the bank is sovereign over the home. The bank owns the house. God is the true owner, and one day he will reclaim that which is his and all that has been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. But really what the devil is doing here is he's saying to Jesus, listen, I'll give you a kingdom without the cross. And had Jesus received this, and it's almost awkward to even say it because he wouldn't have gone there, but had he, his kingdom would not have been internal. It would not have been spiritual. It would not have been eternal. No, it had just been external, physical, and temporary. And so Satan here was trying to offer Jesus a shortcut. And doesn't Jesus love to tempt us with a shortcut in life? And so, uh, you know, he offers this temptation. And Jesus answered him in verse 8, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Absolutely beautiful. You shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And you know, this quote from Deuteronomy 6 really offers one of the great protections against entering into temptation because at the end of the day, temptation is so often a worship issue. 
you know, I think if I could just have this relationship, if I could just have this experience, if I could just have this, uh, you know, title or privilege or whatever, and even if I have to sin to get it, uh, it's worth it. And really, at the end of the day, what that is, is, is a form of worship. It's, it's us saying, I will do whatever I have to do for you or for this in order to get this in return. But what Jesus is announcing is, look, there's only one that should be worshipped, and it's God. And for us to say that there's only one for us. And to have the fear of God inside of our hearts, a reverence for God inside of our hearts, this is a wonderful protection against temptation. And when temptation comes along to say, no, you're tempting me, you're wanting to draw me into a form of worship, of something that will not satisfy, that will not lend to my health and my betterment, but it will actually corrupt me and harm me and hurt me. No, I will love the Lord my God with all my heart and with all my soul and with all my mind. And there's only one for me to worship. What a great protection against temptation. And so finally in verse 9, Jesus took him to Jerusalem and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands he will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now, a couple of things to point out. Number one, notice that Satan says to Jesus, the temptation is throw yourself down from the pinnacle of the temple. In other words, Satan, and the thing I'm trying to point out is that he could not throw Jesus down himself. He had to suggest it to Jesus. Notice secondly, that Satan quotes the Bible, Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12. And he takes it, of course, and misrepresents it and twists it to come up with a different kind of idea or truth to basically say, well, hey, listen, you could, you know, put God to the test. Let's see, you know, is he really going to protect you? Is he really going to watch over you? Is he really going to care for you? And sort of the temptation here is, uh, well, let's see, is God really going to protect your life? And I think for us, one of the great things to remember is the gospel. Because, you know, when sickness comes into our lives, there is that question. You know, Lord, have you forgotten me? When trial comes into our lives, there is that question, Lord, have you forgotten me? When any kind of pain or heartache or difficulty comes into our lives, Lord, have you forgotten me? And to remember the gospel, that in the gospel of Jesus Christ, those who believe in him, all sickness will be done away with, all trial will be done away with all pain will be eliminated for all of eternity but to remember that reality here in this life we might endure some of those things and the holy spirit will help us to endure those things well but to remember that they will ultimately be removed by the blood of jesus christ eternally but jesus answered verse 12 and said it is said you shall not put the lord your god to the test so he quotes there from Deuteronomy chapter 6 once again. And the full quote in Deuteronomy 6 verse 16 continues, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Now when you go back and read the record of what had occurred there in Massa, it's very simple. You know, God had delivered the people through the ten plagues there in Egypt, through the Red Sea and giving victory to them over the Egyptian armies. God had given them water 
turned the bitter water into sweet water and also had given them quail and had given them manna and uh, had worked wonderfully for the people of Israel, had given them, you know, food and, and was blessing them in great and miraculous ways. And then they came to this place uh, called Massa. And the question that they asked the Lord, it says in Exodus 17, verse 7, that they tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? And so the way that they were testing God was by saying, hey, listen, you know, yeah, there's all these things that we look back on and we see that the Lord has been for us and the Lord has been with us and the Lord has redeemed us and the Lord has defended us. But is God with us today or not? And what Jesus seems to be announcing to the devil is, listen, I don't need to do anything like throw myself down from a temple mount to try to prove that God is for me. I have so many reasons to believe that God loves me. So many reasons to believe that God is for me. So many reasons to know that he is my father. And I do not need to put him to the test to see if he's for me. All I have to do is go back into my history to know that he is for me. And when we as believers go back to the cross of Christ and simply remember, you know, the Lord has been so good to me. What a great protection against temptation when it comes our way to say, God, you've been good to me. You've been so good to me. I don't need to look elsewhere. I don't need to look to the east or the west. I know that every good and perfect gift comes down from my Father who is in heaven, the Father of lights with whom there is no change or variation or shadow of turning. God is the same, and he's always blessing, and every good and perfect gift comes from him. I do not need to find it in any other place. God has been good to me. What a great protection against sin. And when the devil, verse 13 had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Here we see the devil leaving Jesus. Now, some people sort of wonder at that. Why would the devil leave Jesus? Why wouldn't he just continue? Well, I think maybe sometimes the thought in our minds when we ask a question like that is that we think that Satan is as omnipresent as God is. And that's not the reality. Satan is a created, finite being with limited resources, unlike God, who is infinite and without limit to his resources. And so Satan here has to leave, you know, just strategically. What he's doing against Jesus does not work. He must put his attention elsewhere. And we know that the elsewhere was upon Judas. He began to work upon Judas's heart in, in so many ways. But here we see an illustration of what James declared in James chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil, James writes, and he will flee from you. One of the greatest ways to invite temptation into your life is to yield to temptation. But when you resist temptation, it gets easier, at least for a season, because the enemy departs. The enemy flees from you. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateoldridge.com.